Hello and welcome to Next. I'm your host, Marcus Atkinson. If you get an opportunity, like our page on Facebook. And if you also have an opportunity, go to Twitter and like our page there. We are at 814 Next. Lend your voice to the dialogue. Several years ago, thank you for tuning in. Several years ago, actually many years ago in 1999, uh, a 28-year-old man was sentenced to a life sentence for drug trafficking. This was the first time this had ever happened in Erie County history. Fast forward to today, one of the positives that has come out of the Trump administration's time in office is the passing of the First Step Act. The First Step Act has, Act has allowed uh, prisoners from the federal, pr federal prison industrial complex to qualify for release upon certain conditions. And when you go back to that 28-year-old in 1999 that was sentenced, that gentleman's name was Carl Knight. Carl joins us in studio today to talk about his journey leading up to his prison sentence, what life was like there, and just how it felt when he heard that he actually had an opportunity to circumvent a life sentence and come home to his family. And so today we welcome Carl Knight to the show. Carl, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. All right. And so, Carl, this is, this is a groundbreaking situation. I know a lot of people were um, overwhelmingly overjoyed when they got this news because it affected so many families. Now, mind you, the federal prison system accounts for a small percentage of prisoners across the United States, African-American prisons especially. But it's called a First Step Act for a reason. Um, before we lead into that moment, give us a little bit about your background because you're an Eriot, you're born and raised here, uh, you're kind of a hometown guy. Tell us about your childhood and the events leading up to your arrest in 1999. Yes, um, like uh, I grew up in uh, down the Lower East Side coming up um, like on East 17th Street, 23rd, different areas of the block uh, of the neighborhood and um, my childhood, you know, Coming up, I had dreams like the average young uh, black guy that come from that neighborhood. You know, my dream was playing basketball. I was good at going to the, M I wanted to go to the NBA. I was good at basketball. So me and my friends and us, you know, we would, uh, you know, be playing ball every day, hang out, different sports, football too. You know, and as, you know, time go on, you know, I, I, I was good in high school. I had uh, college offers and, um, you know, I would say that as you get, as, as I was getting in, you know, 17, 18, 17, 16, 17 years old, pardon me, I um, was hanging around, you know, I would say, you know, the street guys, quote unquote, and, uh, you know, it, the stories, you know, is, is uh, you know, I went into the streets instead of, it led me to the streets instead of going into you know, the basketball, what I wanted to do, the area college and uh, make it to the NBA, my dreams and aspiration. So one of the things that I've been talking to people about is this new show. Uh, it's a streaming show called Snowfall. I want to okay. say it's on FX. I don't know if you've watched it before. Yeah, I watched it. Snowfall is so fascinating to me because, you know, me graduating high school in 1988, you were a little behind me. I remember watching you play basketball at Academy, actually. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. During that time, the crack epidemic was just being introduced mm -hmm. to this country. Yeah. And I bring that series up because I think it does a, a great job of just showing the evolution of this culture in the African-American community. And here's why I'm saying all of this. Going into the decisions that you made with drug trafficking, selling drugs, however you want to frame yes, it, sir. there really wasn't a frame of reference in terms of what this does to community. Mm -hmm. Yeah. or what the potential consequences would be. The whole community was kind of green to the whole idea right. of selling dope. Talk about your, you, you even becoming aware of selling drugs and things along those lines. Yeah, uh, once again, um, you know, um, coming, becoming aware of selling drugs is like I said, being around the drug dealers and uh, the, you know, the guys that do the, the criminal activity. You know, I grew up in that environment. That's where the environment come from, you know. Um, guys is not aware of the crack epidemic, like you saying, uh, what it does to people, this and that. And at, at that age, you don't look at it that from that Absolutely. perspective. All you're looking at is, you know, you got to survive and eat. That's how I looked at it. You know, coming from me, that's, you know, at a young age, like I was telling you on the way up here is that, 
you know, I didn't have a strong family foundation, you know, and nobody, no one was really there at, at in and out of my life. Uh, you know, my parents, you know, love them to death, but they wasn't there. I didn't have a strong foundation. So the streets raised me up. And then I got introduced to uh, the crack. First it started with powder, then the crack. And that's, and that's how I uh, uh, started selling by, you know, being in the streets and around certain, you know, things. But mm -hmm. uh, I would say, you know, you don't become aware of the effect of the drug until I got arrested. You know, I wasn't educated, wasn't knowledgeable about the street life and selling drugs or whatever criminal activity that you does. You're not you're not educated on, on in that sense. You know, um, I didn't get educated until I got the time inside the prison. Mm -hmm. So Ed Pelletella wrote an article about this. It was yeah. actually picked up picked up by MSNBC. Right. I remember your sentence. Yeah. A life sentence. Yeah. I mean, bar none, the most talked about drug trial right. in, in, in Erie and in the hood. Certainly it was the yeah. most talked about trial. Yeah. What was your reaction when they hit you with this unprecedented conviction? Uh, I'll tell you this. Uh, me leading up to, I would say leading up to uh, when I got, got indicted and, and leading up to the trial. Now, you got to remember. I'm 28 years old, so I'm uneducated. I don't realize the effect what's about to happen to me, what I'm really in. When you go back to that mindset, I'm 49 now, but when you go talk to this guy, 28 years old, he look, I'm looking at it from a movie perspective, TV perspective. Now, you don't understand what you in. So leading up to the trial, you know, you, 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 you look at the idolize of TV and stuff, and you get these concepts that... Uh, you know, you're going to win, you're going you're gonna to beat this and all. Mm -hmm. But when I got found, when I got convicted, uh, I, I, would, I would say that's when um, it really started a little bit, a little bit, I would say, started to say, man, you know, uh, I, it's potentially now I could go away for a long time now, mm -hmm. you know. So when I, got the, when I got the life sentence, you know, uh, it hit me right there when the judge said life sentence. And then it really didn't hit, it really, really did hit me is when my mother, I would say my family, uh, my mother, you know, she, that's the first time that I seen her break down and it, and it really touched me then. And uh, I, I, I actually asked the judge before the, the sheriffs took me off, could I speak with her to the side right there? Because, you know, that was a touching moment for me. And I didn't realize what I had done Mm. You know, I, I was, it was about me, but when I look back at my mom right. and my family and my children, you know, I, I said, oh, damn, I, I really messed this up. I, I was um, selfish on this right here. It dawned on you right then and there that they had to do that time with exactly. you. Exactly. But when I seen my mother break down, mm -hmm. that's when it really, you know, uh, like, it, it was a touching moment. You mm -hmm. know, it's, it can't, I can't describe it, but. You know, I just really felt, you know, I felt bad. I felt like, you know, I messed up, really. That, that touched me, mm -hmm. you know. So when you read this article that Ed put together, one of the things they put in there was the U.S. Attorney's Office alleged that your operation smuggled crack value to the total of $20 million from New York to Erie between 93 and 97. You talked about the image that you had in your mind of this lifestyle and everything else. I specifically remember, remember the... the, the the character Nino Brown from New Jack City. Right, right, right. They painted you like Nino Brown, yeah, like, no. and I'm thinking about the Carl Knight that I know. Yeah. And I'm thinking, okay, I understand he's in the game, no. but they created this, this literal, this huge image of you. Right, right. You know, in this game. Yeah. How did it feel to hear yourself portrayed in a way that you like? Okay, I, I might be doing some things, but this doesn't sound accurate to me. Exactly. How did that feel? Uh, it felt. I, I you know, I. It felt like, you know, I was like, wow, why would they have to, you know, do that, paint me like that? Because I wasn't like that. You know, I'm not saying I didn't do wrong, but I wasn't like the picture that they painted. And, you know, but at the same time, like I was telling you on the way up is that, you know, for me understanding now that they had a job to do and, you know, they did their job. And, uh, you know, I don't, I, I, I just feel like, you know, Whatever the reason how they painted, you know, I, I felt it wasn't accurate, but 
I don't got, who is mine to say after, it's in, the, it's in their hands now. Absolutely. They can do what they want to do. So at the end of the day, you know, I just had to look at it. And, and, and I want people to understand that when you are in criminal uh, in the lifestyle, you can be painted more than what you what you what they say you are mm -hmm. because they trying to get a conviction. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, but that's the way it go. That's the game. When you play that game, that's the way it is. You know, you don't you don't have to say so. But at the end of the day, it wasn't. It wasn't what they were saying as as much as they were as as it was. So, you know, I, I'm not saying that. You know, the jury found me guilty. I I done wrong. You know, I I'm, I'm paying. I paid my dues, and I'm trying to come back positive in the right way. But it wasn't that image as as they was painting it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And going in as an African American male doesn't help because even when prison is not involved, society paints a certain image right. of black men in the first place. Right. So when you're in a situation like you, I would imagine, having never been through that, that for the prosecution, it is that much easier to vilify you. Yeah. This is what they do to black men in general. Yeah, sure. Anyways, so I want to go to the experience because I know that one of your goals right now is to speak life into young people that are potentially headed that direction. Yeah, sure. Taking your experience, I want to say it was 21 years, 22. 22 years. Yeah, sure. Taking those 22 years experience, what do you say to young people or to people in general about that experience in terms of the cautionary tale? Mm. Um, you know, one thing that what I try to do, too, is this. I try to go back and I look at the 28-year-old Carl Knight, the 27, 26, when I'm young, you know, when I, when I, when I was doing wrong, 19, 20, whatever. I, I want to say the message. You can tell a person, look, don't do this and don't do that. I come from that, that environment, and, you know, and they, some of them, they might not want to hear that, but the thing is, is my experience, it's my obligation to tell them that and give them this experience, whether they want to hear it or not. But I think, though, by implementing uh, uh, certain, um, I would say, systems or programs, that I wanted to try to do, like I was telling you, to help these guys yeah. see the message more clearer. Hands on, getting with these guys. Um, I think uh, to show them that there's a better way that you can do things to come out of criminal activity. You know, I, I can't save everybody, but that's what I'm trying to do from my experience because inside those walls, I was like, I, we was doing those type of things. Like we would have like conflict resolution programs where guys, if they are beefing with each other, um, we can have meetings and classes and we give them information and solve beefs, what they're going through. Uh, um, far as the, the drug trade, what I was in speaking that that's not a good way of going if you, if, you know, risking your life on any that or any criminal activity. Um, just putting the tools that need to be there, mm -hmm. you know, so these guys can get the picture. You can, it's easy for you to go up and tell a guy, well, don't do this and don't do that. And, and you know, he don't have a job. He, you know, he's uneducated. And, and he don't have the tools that's needed. But now if you put something in place, which I didn't have, I didn't have no mentor, this and that, I, you know, coming up. I was, I didn't want to go that way, but it was easy to go that way. There was nobody on there that was doing positive stuff that would say, well, come over here. I got, I got, I got something for you. I'm going to invest in you the right way. This is what I'm trying to do now from my experience. And I was telling you about that. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's very important. You know, you can, it's easy, like I say, you can just tell them that, but, you know, I, like I say, you can't save everybody, but the thing is, is, you know, you give the information that's needed, that, that right. needs to be there. And if you can save one, it's exactly. worth the effort. Exactly. We had a conversation with uh, Freeway Rick Ross, the mm. real Freeway Rick Ross, mm. right here in the studio wow. a couple years ago. I interviewed him one-on-one. Mm. And he talked a little bit about his battle in court with the, the rapper Rick Ross that mm. stole his name and his yeah. image and everything else. Yeah. Freeway talked extensively about him utilizing that time in prison mm. to become better. Mm. He went into prison illiterate, um, learned how to read and really started to educate himself on everything from history to business and things along those lines. Contrast that to a rapper like Tupac, who said that when he grew up, he thought that going to prison was a rite of passage for black men. Mm. And then he got there just to find out that, you know, this ain't it. Right, right. And he also said that it broke his spirit, though. 
and it took something from him that he was mm. never able to regain mm. up until he was assassinated. Yeah. And so my question to you is, how did you avoid letting prison kill your spirit? Because it sounds like you were involved, like, Rick, like Freeway Rick Ross, mm. you were involved with a lot of things that actually fed your spirit mm. and prepared you for this moment, even though you didn't know this moment was coming. Very interesting you say that. I was just talking about that with a guy the other day. Um, you know, one thing I'm gonna point to right now, the t-shirt that I'm wearing, it was God. And people don't want to hear that. They'll say that, you know, guys are like, oh, come on, man, you know, the average. But it was. I mean, you know, coming from a street perspective, my first year, first year and a half, I was still, like, you know, teetering, playing games, this and that. And then, like I said, it hit me again, like, after a year and a half. And uh, I told myself, I said, listen, man, uh, I got to de uh, destroy and rebuild my mindset because I can't, I, I gotta wonder why I ended up in this place right here. Mm -hmm. And I'm not gonna let this place, I'm, I'm looking at this place, it's a year and a half, I'm looking at this place. I'm like, man, this ain't a place to be, man. This is, you know, I just lost my life. Like, I'm not gonna let this right here take me down and kill me. So I got a first thing, what I did is I got on my knees and prayed and I asked God for help. Whether people know this, you know, this might be a classic case, whatever speak, but this is the truth. I got on my knees and prayed and I was praying. And then my next step is I said I, I needed help. And what I found in there, mentors, guys who already who's been in there. Right. And they've changed their life. Mm -hmm. But one thing about these guys is that they they not going if you really, really change your life, they ain't going to invest in you. But if you still, if they know that you're still with the street mind and you ain't and you ain't trying to change, they'll give you a message, but they're not gonna invest in you mm -hmm. if you're gonna keep over here. They got a state, like you said, it's their obligation to give the message. Right. But now you gonna put as you're gonna put the work in to change your mindset, to resurrect your mind, to change, to uh, uh, um, take all that bull that you that you learned coming up to this point why you failed. De destroy that mindset that you had, that street mindset. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened. God first, then my mentors. So when I got in there, I started getting around these guys and, and, my, and you know, my mindset and my discipline, and, I, and they invested me. And, and that's what happened all these years. Mm -hmm. I stuck with it. And, you know, uh, it's a blessing up to this day and time. You know, um, Right. God is good, man. All the time. You know, he gave me gave me another chance. I didn't think I was going to get one. So I want to bring all of all of my comments full circle because I brought up Snowfall, which was loosely and indirectly based on the life of Freeway Rick Ross. Yes, sir. And so I bring up Freeway Rick Ross with you because the political climate at that time changed the trajectory of his sentence. He didn't know he was caught up in the middle of this Iran-Contra scandal. He had no idea that he was linked to this whole situation yeah. with the CIA. And so there's this some political rumblings, things change in Washington. Suddenly, like yourself, oh, I'm not going to spend the rest of my life here. Right. And so enter the First Step Act for you. When did you start hearing rumblings or, or whispers that, hey, man, you may actually be able to get out of here? When did people first start coming to you with that? And when did that dawn on you? The First Step Act was, uh, it, it actually happened with Obama. And uh, 2010, I think it was. Fair Sentencing Act. Fair Sentencing Act. But they didn't make it retroactive. Exactly. So, but we know that's guys who've, who've been in the law library, study law. But we know when they make a law, it don't pass for us. The lifers, the big time guys, mm -hmm. it might start off with the two, three year guys. First, it starts off with them, we pass the law. And, and the guys that's coming in prison. Because the way the law is structured is the system is you got your direct appeal, 2255. So most of them guys, we passed that. Right. But these guys coming in now, it applies to them. So you know down the line, but you don't know when. Right, 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 right. Now they're going to make it retroactive. But when? That could take years, which right. it did. And here, here, now you know you got Donald Trump. He came in and he started talking about this, the rumblings of that through Donald Trump, his administration. And uh, they start talking about the First Step Act. Here we is. We watch the news every day. Mm -hmm. We go to the law. There's a case law coming out. And we like, wow. And he was talking about it on the news, kept talking about it. And sometimes you don't know when bills get passed when you're in prison because they can have, get passed in the middle of the night through Congress. And the bill got passed. Now the bill get passed. 
Now we got we to gotta get a copy of the bill, read the bill, how it's going to apply to us. And what happened was in there, in that First Step Act, was the statute. The statute as opposed to the guidelines. You, a lot of you might not understand that, but guidelines, uh, mm -hmm. guidelines are discretion. The statute's dealing with the Constitution. And so when we seen that they went in there with that Constitution, messing with that Constitution, now that was mandatory. So we like, wow, this might, this might be it for right, us, brothers. Right. This might be it. And it was. But at the end of the day, they still tried to make the Constitution a discretion with the, mm -hmm. with the guidelines. So they were still doing that now. That's, that's uh, messing with that. There's a lot of guys fighting that's called the Eighth Amendment. You can't make no statute of discretion. So no here or there. At the end of the day, I filed my motion. And, uh, you know, all the years where I've been doing, taking classes, doing what I'm supposed to do, you know, in there you don't, you don't catch a shot, meaning uh, getting into fights and all that. I did that my first, first year or two. You know, a little hothead coming in. Like I said, I had to change my mind. But the judge, when he seen that, he said, dang, for like 19 or 20 years, you ain't catch a shot. You've been doing positive things. Uh, it's people, a long stretch. Yeah, you help other inmates out. Uh, um, even the guards are, are, are wishing that you come home. You have Mr. Trusilla, the guy who convicted me. Got to give him Not that. advocating he, for you. He advocated. He wrote a letter for me. You know, he, he say, like he said, he didn't feel I needed a I, I should have a life sentence. I, because I rehabilitated myself and you know that was a blessing so mm. people might look at that and say well well man he convicted you yeah. so how can you say that but look at the end of the day I always go back and tell God is good man God sent that man back into my life again and helped me out mm -hmm. I was on the wrong side and I'm blessed to he blessed me with that so Carl talk to us about the moment you discovered that you were getting out, you've served your 22 years, mm -hmm. you've done your homework, mm -hmm. and you followed this. Now it's the moment of truth. Yes, sir. What was that like? <clears throat> I would say it was just unbelievable, man. Like, you can't believe it at that moment, man. And it's like, man, I, is this real or is this they playing? Because you've been down for so long, 22 years. And you know, like I said, you, you get denied, you get denied, you get denied on these appeals, and you be like, damn, when my time is gonna come? And then once that, I, once the counselor and my unit manager, these are the administration that's over us inside the uh, prisons, when they came and told me that, and they, and they had me sign these papers, I went in that cell after that, and as I said, I, I prayed, gathered my thoughts, said, this is it. I've been preparing for this moment all the time. And like I said, it was just unbelievable. And, you know, on my way out, out of my family coming to get me out of, out of that prison, you know, uh, before I, I left out, you know, the guys who I was in there with, you know, uh, we, we um, gave each other hugs, you know what I mean? Like, listen, man, this is your time. They let me know, listen, my time coming, but this is your time and go out and do what you're supposed to do and stay focused, get with your family, stay focused and go out to your community and give back, this is your time. Mm -hmm. You got another chance. And when I got, when I started meeting my family, when they came to that door, when I got out them walls and seeing society and it's just unbelievable, man. I'm very grateful, man. And to this day, that's all I've been with and I've been trying to do exactly what I said I'm supposed to do and, and, and do right in the community is just unbelievable. To this day, I told you that today, everybody asks me, how's your day today? I'd be like celebrating another day of living, brother. Go. So what the newspaper articles did not capture is the urban legend, mm. Carl Knight. Mm. We discussed that briefly yes, before. <clears throat> and look at people like Huey P. Newton. Yeah. And you know, he experienced somewhat the same thing where you had all of these people free Huey and they've got right. posters of them up all over the place. Right. And, right. you know, and, and that, that image, that urban legend takes on a life of its own. Right. And so locally, in many ways, that kind of describes your existence. I've seen your name spray painted on walls, free right. Carl Knight. Right, right. I've seen t-shirts, free Carl Knight. Right. I, I, I've heard it in rhymes and in poems, right? right. <laughs> right? right, right. People would lament the, the prison industrial complex and they bring your name up. A lot of a lot of which had never even met you before. Exactly. This image of Carl Knight. When did you become aware of that? 
and how did that play into your release? Uh, I don't. I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't say uh, it played into my release. But I'm saying when when you came out. Right. 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 Oh, right. when I'm out here in the community. Exactly. Um, when did you like become said, aware of it, and, yeah. and what did that look like when you came out? Uh, I, I became aware of it when I came out here, and you know, start you know meeting the people, my old um, friends, and just you know enjoying the community. And they was telling me about it. They were saying, you know, and then I seen everybody hung on the horn and, you know, happy for me. You know, I'm, I'm really grateful for that. Yes, yeah. I am. And, um, you know, I, I think the people, they, they feel, uh, you know, the pain that I went through and they feel it was unjust. That I, They feel that, you know, a life sentence was unjust. And, um, you know, um, I'm very grateful to them for that support, you know. And, and, but the image part of it far as uh, um, I would say... The, the the image part of it, I'm not really far as the, the big drug dealer, whatever I yeah. was. I understand that's, you know, the people where you come from, that's how they embrace it. But I'm just, once again, I don't want to embrace that part. Right. You've, that, moved, you've moved, I moved on. Be, I moved on ago. from that. Yes. So I want to I wanna take that image, though, and, and teach from that image, if I can, in a positive way. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm not exactly, and I'm not going to embrace the the drug dealer that I've I've I paid my dues for that, and I'm I'm grateful for the community for embracing me. So that I ask now that that image can become in a positive light, and I'm asking the community to help me, mm -hmm. from my community to all communities. Can you help me now take this image? rehabilitate myself from that image. That's not me, that's not my mindset. Can, I can use my experience from that image. And if you have people or family or children, whatever you have you, let me help you with that, with that experience, to teach them that's not the right role. Mm -hmm. That's not the right image to get. The right image to get is like in your community, doing positive things, whether right. you believe the struggle, now, you, you might not have patience for it, like I said once again, but time will tell. If you, do, if you stay on the right journey in the road, you can and you will have the right image. Mm -hmm. But don't strive for that image because mm -hmm. that's not a good image to have. I think this is a good segue to bring in Gary Horton, president of the local chapter of NAACP. Uh, Gary, welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. Happy to be here. All right. And, and one of the reasons that I wanted to bring you on for this particular show is, and Carl, I know that you've recently joined the NAACP. Yes, sir. You know, Gary, uh, Ms. Horton has a legendary track record for really trying to bring equity, fairness, and, and you know, to uplift the African-American community and the greater Erie community. When you heard about the news of Carl Knight and others coming home, uh, the addition of this first step bill, you know, to the, to the Fair Sentencing Act, what was your feeling? Because I know that you've been involved heavily with uh, fairness and justice for people from the prison industrial complex to uh, the day-to-day -day grassroots effort. What was that like for you? I felt that it was just a matter of time. And um, there are others from Erie also who should be freed. And um, just a matter of time um, with the prison reform um and racial justice um i just figured that it was overdue mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so he talked about people blowing the horns and people being happy for him and america especially in the african-american community we look at so many of these injustices and i quoted earlier how he was the first person in erie county to be sentenced to life for you know drug crimes and you see people being tired of, you almost feel like you, you can see yourself in that journey as well. Talk about this reckoning in America. Not that black people haven't been tired all along, but it's to a point where it is as it should have always been. We need something done about these things right now. Talk about the urgency that we see to actually get things done to start trying to balance these scales out. I um, can appreciate that, and um, I would, for one, would like to see the same enthusiasm 
for freedom uh, for individuals like Mr. Knight. Um, I'd like to see the same type of enthusiasm and motivation of our people getting involved in, um, you know, real life issues today that impact our community, like the voting process. Mm -hmm. um, if we look at uh, here in our state, uh, even here in our own community, we have an opportunity to make transformative change right now um, through the voting process. Our vote has been uh, suppressed historically and it's under unprecedented attack right now. Um, we have to fight it. At the same time, we have to exercise it. And exercising it is probably the best way to fight it. Um, if we look at the last uh, presidential election and how consequential it was because of the opportunity to elect a the first woman and the first black or minority to uh, the second highest position in the country as vice president. A promise by the president when elected um, that when he got a Supreme Court vacancy, he's going to nominate an African-American female. Um, the attempts by the um, administration after winning Georgia and Arizona and um, Minnesota and Wisconsin some and Pennsylvania, um, a, an appreciation and a, a reciprocity on the part of the administration to push forward progressive policies that will in fact uh, change people's lives, mm -hmm. like the child tax credit that will cut child poverty in half, um, a tremendous opportunity. And so with the American Rescue Plan that is now being, uh, which was passed and now being decided on how to implement it, we have an opportunity not to look backwards and stay there, but to look backwards as a means to create policies to go forward that can in fact transform communities across the country and for our interests, specifically Erie, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. There was an article written by a gentleman by the name of Derek Thompson with The Atlantic. And the article was entitled The Truth About Georgia's Voter Law. And I want to read one segment of that for you because you said that uh, accurately so, that in many ways uh, the vote is under attack. From that article it reads, the most ominous provision of the law affects the final step in the voting process, the official count. The new law removes the Georgia Secretary of State as chair of the state election board and allows the GOP-controlled legislature to handpick his replacement. And here's a quote by Richard Hassan, who is a law and political science professor at UC Irvine. He says, the reason you didn't have a total meltdown in Georgia last year is because you had a heroic Secretary of State and a group of election administrators behind him who were not willing to mess with the fair counting of the vote. If this law had passed, there would have been other decision makers who would have had the power to mess with the vote. And so this underscores what you are saying about the vote. As NAACP president and as just a community advocate, what is your message to people about these unprecedented laws that are now, well, I can't say unprecedented. Many people look at it as Jim Crow 2.0, be it here or Florida. What are you saying to people um, about some of the, the backlash that we're getting from blacks voting in unprecedented numbers the last election? Well, the, the, the uh, most effective tool we have against that is to vote. If our vote didn't matter and our vote didn't count, and if our vote wasn't so significant and important, they wouldn't be working so hard to deny it to us. Uh, the fairness issue is, uh, the or the unfairness, has existed in this country as long as we've been here. That's not new. Mm -hmm. Whether it was the white primary, the poll tax, the grandfather clause, the, uh, you know, literacy tests, <clears throat> you know, or any other 
you know, show me your license. Oh, your signature ain't the same as it was on your license 20 years ago. You know, and all the, how many jelly beans in the jar, how many seeds in a watermelon, you know, all of those kind of things, manipulating uh, the process at the state level across the country, the different states makes the case why we need a national voting rights law and legislation. It has to be addressed at the federal level and that, but the main thing we can do is vote, mm-hmm. vote like it counts. Uh, the, the opposition is working too hard to keep us from doing it. When, and the most effective uh, response to it is to vote and vote in numbers. Get your church members to vote. Get your family to, to vote. Get your block to vote. Get your children to vote. Don't go vote on election day without trying to take five or ten other people with you. And that, that's mm-hmm. the biggest, most effective response to all of these attempts to suppress our vote. And then we need action at the federal level. We need oversight at the federal level. And uh, hopefully uh, those two things will um, save our democracy, mm-hmm. grow our democracy, and uh, win back the, or earn back the reputation that we have across the world for, for, uh, for our democracy and our inclusion and our diversity. So I want to talk about community unity, and I want to start with this voting thing and segue back to a conversation I was having with Carl before we brought you on. You had an event, you, the NAACP hosted an event on May 14th, Friday, May 14th, and it was the Black Voters Matter bus voter rally. And the group of people that you assembled, so this was MCIC, the Minority Community Investment Coalition, of which you're a part as well, the AACC, Erie's Divine Nine, Erie's Black Wall Street, WERG Super Soul Saturday. This was a very impressive group of people coming together to underscore the importance of voting in the African-American community, but to encourage the active act of voting. Talk to us about the importance of bringing several groups together and bringing the community together, because I think that all of these groups represented a significant segment of the African-American community. And you seem to have been very intentional lately about trying to bring people together in order to wage this fight. Talk about the importance of that. Well, uh, unity in the community has been a phrase of mine for years. uh, And um, it's uh, easier said than done. It's a work in progress. Um, I believe with the challenges that all of us have faced uh, organizations, families, individuals um, have brought us all to the conclusion that we're better together. And so it's an approach to uh, do that uh, Martin Luther King style, peaceful, nonviolent, and direct uh, action. Um, it doesn't cost a person anything to reach out to another organization. We have everything to gain, everything to gain. And I believe that the the idea that we're divided is a relic of the past Mm -hmm. uh, that people have used against us. We're more united than most interest groups, most ethnic groups, most, uh, uh, you know, in parties. I mean, like everybody is uh, have a difference of opinion. That's the beauty of being an American. Right. Uh, That's the importance of your freedom of speech or individual rights. How do you make all of that work? And so the NAACP has chosen to advocate unity. We recognize the success that we have made historically has been through collaboration and working with all white people aren't racist, just like all black or brown people aren't stupid or dumb or lazy. And, uh, And we're, again, we're more unified than uh, the people who po- try to point out our differences mm-hmm. to uh, use against us. So I, you know, intentionally under my leadership with NAACP have been trying to embrace anyone that's willing to work with us. Mm-hmm. And that that's the strength of, uh, of our survival. And it is the uh, mechanism of which that we'll be able to get our uh, just return out of the, the, to the victor go the spoils. Mm-hmm. Uh, through our efforts, there was a victor and they have spoils. 
And now we're seeking to get our fair share of that. Uh, we have a better opportunity to do that united. Uh, one thing the NAACP is advocating is a plan that looks at uh, uh, proportionately appropriating the resources under the American Rescue Plan based on the demographics in the community. Like a minimum, I believe we should receive 10% of the county's 53 million or 53.4 or $5 million at a minimum. The county has a uh, anti-racism plan and uh, that now they need to put some resources uh, to uh, making it effective. In the past, all of our groups that you mentioned have been told that there's no funding, there's no money, you know, there's no, there, no, 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 no. Well, that's the president has a different message and Congress has appropriated a plan uh, with some resources that if we embrace it on the local level, we in fact uh, can have a pool of money set aside to, to affect change in our own community, mm -hmm. to transform our own community, to uh, fund our own initiatives, to take care of our own challenges, you know, to include our own organizations and people and neighborhoods and things like that. We certainly have a smart enough people in our race uh, that can do that. And we have uh, experienced enough people to know how the government operates, how funding operates, mm -hmm. to be able to track and uh, quantify and to measure uh, the results. And so what we at the NAACP believe is that if we can get the city, uh, we minorities, people of color, new Americans make up almost 25% mm. of the city's population. One would argue that we sh should receive a percentage appropriate to our um, demographics uh, out of the city's uh, 79 or $80 million American Rescue Plan money. Excellent point. And if we look at the Erie School District and the problems, our children have always been behind. Uh, the school district has never been able to find and train and employ uh, teachers of color and um, professional minorities and other areas to put in front of our children. We have an opportunity to do those things for ourselves with our tax paid money, with our hard uh, working experienced people and our more than qualified individuals such as yourself and uh, and others and that, that have the ability that now we have some resources, put the onus on us to see if we can do better by ourselves and what others have been able to do in managing poverty and the challenges or the impact of poverty, crime, drugs, unemployment, you know, antisocial behavior, you know, lack of quality education and all of those things. Excellent. Create a pool of money so that we can serve our own self and then put the onus on us to be able to produce results mm -hmm. uh, that uh, will prove uh, this money is designated to be paid in two years, two year allotments, half of it this year, half of it next year, four years uh, to spend it. And uh, I'm up for a challenge to see how much progress we can make in four years mm -hmm. in reducing poverty and transforming neighborhoods in our own community. This is actually a good segment. Excellent points, Mr. Horton. As I go back to, to Carl, I wanna talk a bit about that, riding off that community unity piece and and holding us accountable, you know, ourselves and us taking these things on ourselves. I know that Carl, you recently joined the NAACP and Mr. Horton is one of, you know, one of those individuals that when people get back on their feet, be it from the prison industrial complex or from financial difficulty, whatever the situation is, you know, these conversations find their way to his desk. Talk to us about your, the impetus or your reasoning behind wanting to join the NAACP. And, and Mr. Horton, if you wouldn't mind, I wanna talk about what that conversation felt like you know, for you as well. Yeah, for me, uh, let me first off and say that, you know, it started with me uh, inside the prison of, of researching a little bit on NAACP. Cause like I said, when I go back home, when I was going home, I knew I was going home one day and I wanted to have that unity, right. but link up with the right people organization. And one thing I can remember about uh, Mr. Horton, even in my younger years, 
I, I would even from the street perspective, I would hear the positivity That's right. that he was doing in the community. He always oh, a living legend. And I said, told, told myself this, I said, well, you know, I'm gonna read up on NAACP a little bit. And when I come home, I wanted to see, uh, you know, how I can help to serve the community. And what I did was is linked up with him and his brother, Andre, and uh, they gave me a lot of information. And, you know, they sat down with me and talked to me about, you know, the things that they done and, and what I can do. And I just wanted to get my little piece in how I can serve the community. So at the end of the day, uh, Mr. Horton, I told him uh, he had a membership thing and I wanted to join. And he said, yeah, I, I, matter of fact, I'm going to pay it for you. Uh, you, you, you be a member, you, you got it. You know, I'm just coming home and I'm with that. And he paid my membership. And, and uh, the last thing that we was doing, what he was doing with Mr. Horton, uh, which I liked it too, he was giving out free food at the JFK. I haven't talked to him in a couple weeks now, but the last thing, but he told me that was on pause for like a month and he was gonna start back up. So I was looking forward to hearing from him pretty soon, which I was gonna give him a call here. Uh, but he do various things, just things like that, donating to community mm -hmm. food drives, like you said, voting. It's just so much that Mr. Horton have done in the NAACP that I admire. And like I said, I just wanted to come in and play my role best as I can. And I feel that that guidance from them mm -hmm. would be you know, very important. Mr. Horton, why is it, Talk about the importance of the African-American community facilitating a smooth transition for brothers and sisters that are in Carl's position that are coming out of these situations, reintegrating into society. You know, Carl and I talked about that Malcolm Martin paradigm, right, coming from two totally different backgrounds and two totally different journeys, ending up in a very similar place of greatness. And so when you look at someone in Carl's position, you know, you're going to be a capture for a lot of individuals like this. Why is it important for the African-American community to be an intimate part of these reintegration processes? Well, I believe that um, hope is not a foregone conclusion. Um, it's not a characteristic that um, people of color um, are accustomed to uh, experiencing or having. So whether it's a legend like uh, Mr. Carl Knight or, um, you know, just unforgotten guy or lady over there that, you know, got caught up in the system and, you know, now trying to restart their life. I've, I've never felt um, that I was um, capable, experienced, or whatever to um, be able to tell um, a person that had a, a PhD in a street life how to manage. Um, I always respected um, their skills, even though I may not have agreed with their um, particular plan of survival. And um, so, the people that have come out and have come to me, big or little, I knew that survival was key. And uh, I recognize there are organizations that were better equipped, better experienced, better resourced to deal with that than myself. I always felt myself was not a, my way of dealing with second chance people was to just give them a second chance. Uh, my my work was with first chance people. Um, always hearing from people in the system that nobody was qualified, which I couldn't accept. When I see and work with people every day that are more than qualified. And um, so there's enough first chance people that need to be served as there are second chance people that need to, to be served. Mm -hmm. I saw myself as a first chance person I saw action speaking louder than words, just giving a second chance person the second chance and not talking. So uh, I've always told the brothers that they could, that there was nothing wrong with hustling. Yeah. They had to have the right hustle and that they could pay themselves minimum wage, $7, $8 an hour by, by hustling. And I would try to share with them the Booker T. Washington approach to 
working for yourself, working with your hands. And I would tell those that contacted me before they came out to try to learn a skill or a craft or a trade, how to work for yourself. Because when you come out, the bank ain't going to give you no job. The insurance company ain't going to give you no job. Government probably ain't going to give you a job. And so you you limited in the in the places that you can even get a second chance from. And minorities have fewer businesses than a uh, lot fewer than what they need. So you couldn't even look there for a second chance, especially unless it, uh, your family had had a business. And so I tried to uh, promote to those individuals a concept of working for themselves and hustling for themselves, kind of uh, first reliance in their in their survival and trying to show them how to do it. Get a truck, bro. You know, buy some tools, you know, like uh, and let's let's hustle. I can I can give you work that way. I can show you how to work, you know, and that. So, um, you know, so um, never closing the door, not answering anybody's phone call, uh, you know, as uh, that was a message that I felt like I was uh, being positive to whoever and not uh, then it was on them. How hard are they willing to work? Mm-hmm. How how hard are they willing to fight? And um, and uh, how much belief do they have? I would tell them the NAACP is only as strong as its members. Mm-hmm. We need members. We need people to, to help us in that. I can't do it by myself. We well, can't do it with a handful of members. You're bringing me into my... And, and when, when a significant number of those members are, are Caucasian and that too, because we, we're not an organization that has only black black members. Excellent we have corporations point. that are members. We have whites that are members. Mm-hmm. And then we have an agenda that has to be broad enough to help the whole community. And, and, and while focusing on making life better for people of color. And so uh, Carl Knight, uh, as well as a few other individuals in the past, uh, embraced that notion. You right. know, I want to work. And uh, NAACP being the oldest civil rights organization in the world, um, not perfect, um, but certainly has a structure and an experience um, and an opportunity to be better uh, if we could find a few good men and women uh, like Mr. Knight. So yeah, that's a good segue. Know, it's been a natural response out of you know. That's a good segue because you you mentioned a lot of things <clears throat> that spot on with Carl's mindset now that he has served his time. I know that you you're part of a family business. Truth yes, sir. Yes, sir. that sells uh, apparel. You've got one of your T-shirts on. God yes, is my sir. height. Yes, sir. And you also talk about your desire to uh, start an agency that works with youth. Talk about some of what you're doing now and what some of your goals are in harmony with what Mr. Orton was saying about just wanting to kind of create your your own reality. Yes, sir. Um, yeah, that's very important. Um, like one of the things that uh, I came when I was in prison, but my family had started the uh, clothing business. They was on the process of starting it, so when I came home, it, they opened up, uh, opened it up, and so I'm just uh, there trying to help help out. And in the process of me helping out, uh, I told my family what I wanted to do was also to this unity thing, like Mr. Horton said, unity is already there, but it needs to, you know, be more, uh, um, I would say, more. Um, together so we can get the, the get the justice that we need but in the process of that i'm trying to talk with other businesses to come together in in, in unity so we can we can um have make our businesses last forever and leave it like for the next generation or our family and friends and and serve the community what it needs the community have needs so i think that just not individually we come together collectively and we can serve the need. That's one thing, like I said, I wanted to try to start my own nonprofit organization uh, so I can put, I would say, systems in place, positive systems in place as of when I was coming up that led me to the streets where I didn't have that, where I can go to and have this information that's needed for me to be a better person in society and serve my community and serve myself and my family and I can make a better life for myself. So uh, these are like things that I'm, I'm trying to put in place, come together and get help with. Uh, this is my goal. And, um, and as time go on, it's, it's going to be more, more things that I have in, uh, down the line that I want to do. And I just want to link up with the right men and, and, and do the right thing and, and do what I'm supposed to do. 
So, Mr. Horton, go back to you before we close as we head towards the finish line. There are a lot of, there's a lot of new energy floating around Erie right now, be that running for political office, opening businesses, just you know, starting organizations and working with existing organizations. You mentioned something about the African-American community actually being more cohesive than a lot of other um, uh, groups in Erie uh, by comparison. Give us your outlook on just the future of Erie with some of this new energy that you're seeing for people who might not know it or see it at a grassroots level. I think the priority to be an entrepreneur or entrepreneurial exceeds that of trying to be a nonprofit. Um, there are people who think we have too many nonprofits and uh, they should pay their fair share. And I think uh, every idea is does not make a nonprofit, but every idea could make a business being, you know, which way do you go? Um, for profit or ta tax exempt or taxable, which is really what nonprofit and for profit is, whether you pay taxes or whether you don't pay them, and that. And I just with what Black Wall Street is doing with a lot of the talent that the younger people have, and that I would encourage them to keep on pushing entrepreneurial. I think then we have to use our unity. The two most important things we can do in the short term is to get out and vote on election day and vote our interests, vote in large numbers, get our family out to vote. Let, them, let the whole world know that we understand how impactful our vote is and that we how, import, how important it is to be intentional in who we select as our leaders and not just let it fall to someone by the nature of our not exercising our vote. I think then we've got to uh, focus on, again, short term, the American Rescue Plan. You know, we've got to explicitly name racial equity as a goal with specific targets to produce results at scale. I think this is the challenge we have to say to the broader community who's receiving these funds. We have to engage historically underserved communities and neighborhoods in prioritizing the investments. Don't just tear down Erie Malibu and uh, Quinn T and, and all of that. Let's do some reinvestment back into the um, into ideas and initiatives that we have. Sore spots that we've seen, them 10 houses on them two blocks and not just the big manufacturing uh, facility that uh, some businessman or corporation walked away from years ago and that after they sucked everything out of it that they could laid off the workers and then abandon the project for us. That project, if you're gonna clean it up, it, we should be engaged in the cleanup. Create the jobs, create policies that allow us to do that. Connect unemployed and low wage workers with good jobs and careers. Right. Stabilize and grow businesses owned by people of color, immigrants and new Americans. And then the list goes on. But if we do those first three or four things that I, I just outlined in the short term, and that, that if we get out and vote like we mean it, vote like we know, and that, that our vote is being suppressed, tried to be taken away. We work too hard. We pay too big a price. We've uh, been at it too long to just sit at home and don't, and don't use it. And then we have to turn that vote into effective policies and that, um, that the people that we vote to represent us uh, will champion. And I All think right. the American Rescue Plan has a lot of money on the table that's coming into this community right now. Half of it this year, the other half of it next year, and that, and I, I think that now is the time for us to get engaged and uh, to make sure that we get our fair share. That's all the right. NAACP's position. That's what we're advocating to all of our partners, whether they be for-profit or non-profit or entrepreneurial or whatever. If they're a new American, a person of color, we want them to stand together with us, saying to the broader community, give us a chance with some resources. And that don't ask us to keep making brick without any straw. And that give us some straw to right. work with too. All right. Gary Horton, NAACP president. Mr. Horton, thank you for coming on the show. 
Anytime. And community advocate Carl Knight. Carl, thank you for coming on the show. Thank yes, you so sir. much for sharing your story. Yes, sir. Thank you. All right. Well, that's it for our show today. Uh, tune in next month for more discussion and analysis on some of the most pressing issues locally and abroad. You can listen to our show on 91.3 FM every fourth Sunday at 4 p.m. For next on WQLM, Marcus Atkinson. I will see you next time.